Sound good, Jim? Excellent. Okay. Oh, so the last night I was talking about resistance, and then this morning I was talking about uh, the idea of cultivating with awareness, uh, awareness with breathing. That was the language I was using. Um, so in around that theme of resistance, it's it's good to always reflect that Buddhist practices of the mind and cultivation of the mind uh, are always in the context of uh, sila and and dana and sila, that the worldly concerns that we are involved in, the social responsibilities that we live in, uh, are are governed by moral restraint and generous action. So we do as much good as possible in the world and as little harm as possible in the world. And that's always the context of these teachings of the mind because if you misunderstood the teachings on non-resistance, then you think, oh, I shouldn't resist a desire to yell at someone and hurt them. And that's not that's not the idea at all. So with action and speech, we're always doing the utmost to refrain from harming ourselves and others and to, to try to enact feelings of, of generosity and compassion. So there's restraint and there's activity. Restraint is governed by sila, uh, moral restraint and so on, and then activity is, is governed by generosity and compassion. But within that context of our social life, our inner life sometimes throws up things which we resist, which we don't want. That's the resistance I'm talking about. Because it, like if I, have, if I have an impulse of cruelty that comes up into consciousness, I don't, I don't do that deliberately. I don't think in the morning, okay, I think, I think I'll do some cruelty today. That'll be fun. We don't think that way because we've already committed ourselves to goodness, but thoughts of cruelty or whatever, wanting to hurt someone or hurt myself, they'll come up because that's just the, the conditioned nature of our childhood, of our culture, whatever it might be. And then the resistance to that never means it never ceases. It's never, never, never allowed to be in consciousness as just an object and allowed to cease. We resist it and we keep pushing it back and it keeps popping up again and, and we have a lot of self-identity around that. So when I, when I refer to resistance and non-resistance, that's, that's what I'm talking about. I'm not saying that when you feel angry you punch the, the person you're angry at in the face. That, that's obviously not what we do. So you need to always get that right. That, and so, you know, the shortest form of Buddhism is do good, refrain from doing harm, purify the heart. And that, that third part, purify the heart, is the ability to uh, be aware of things which are, which are deeply unpleasant. 
uh, and, and bear witness to them as something that changes, that arises and ceases. So like if you have some, you know, if you dislike your parents, or you dislike your kids, on one hand, you know, you could just argue about yourself, but then you could, you could, you could make conscious, oh, this is the, the feeling of disliking my parents. It's not permanent, but it's frightening or threatening or, or, or real, or you think it's really real, and the capacity to, to say, oh, it's like that. That's, that's what I'm referring to in, in, in terms of non-resistance. And so non-resistance, I'm, 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 I'm referring to the Four Noble Truths, and as hopefully you all are quite aware, that Four Noble Truths are talking about the discontents we experience as human beings, and that the cause of those discontents are our attachment to these different types of wantings. And that when we understand those wantings and we don't attach to them, then they're not problematic. We don't get hooked into them, and, and our reference is more the piece of awareness rather than the struggle with the, the various contents that we experience. And Vibhava Tanha, as we call it, is very powerful. It's very, very powerful. It comes from idealism. It comes from biology. I don't, you know, I don't want this pain in my knee or whatever it is. So if, if, if that's an important aspect of our conscious experience that we have to understand, and that's the, the Buddha's recommendation, you, you need to understand this. You know, if you're going to be free, you need to understand this whole Vibhava Tanha operation in consciousness. You need to really see it arising and not, not get sucked into it and believe in it. You need to investigate that and understand what letting go is, or letting be is, or, or whatever language you want to use. So that's important. You know, it's, it's a very, very important thing. And that can't just be dismissed as like, I shouldn't be like that, because that's not wisdom, that's idealism. So that seems to me that if, if, if that's true, if you, if, you, if you think that kind of makes sense, then the meditation should somehow serve my understanding or my increased capacity to understand that aspect of suffering, right? If, if my meditation somehow doesn't serve that, what's the point of it? You know, it's like maybe like going to the movies. That was nice. That was a nice experience. But seems to me that meditation, samadhi, whatever you call it, should serve that very existential problem that, that arises for us as humans. And, and so one of the things I like to think about in terms of meditation is contrast. That if, if I can, if I understand, like let's say, well, some kind of example, um, yeah, like fear, say. So if I have like, social fears and anxieties like that, obviously I don't want them there. And so when they arise, I'm going to resist them. I don't want them. I don't want to get lost in them. And that resistance actually exacerbates them because they're never really known as an object. So I become the subject who's always fighting these things. And let's say I see that. I say, well, yeah, that, yeah, I can see that myself. It's not so much the, the fear that's the problem, it's the resistance to the fear. It's not the shyness that's a problem, it's the not knowing of the shyness. It's not the vulnerability that's a problem, it's the not wanting of the vulnerability. And I see, you know, I see that part of my own suffering. So once I've seen that, somehow, how would my meditation serve that? How would it, how would it serve that in ordinary life? Well, 
the idea of contrast is that you see that, say, in this instance, uh, resistance, what's the, what's the contrast to resistance? That's welcoming. Right? Simple enough. You know, like nowadays you can manipulate your photographs and the, uh, on your computers and so on, and you have these dials for light contrast, so you can make a real strong contrasting picture, can't you? With more contrast or less contrast. So, what would be the contrast to resistance that would be welcoming, maybe? Or acceptance, you could say it's acceptance. So, if, you're, if your meditation is um, about that, let's say, rather than getting something, creating mind states which would then serve resistance, then you could say, well, okay, I'll, I'll meditate with the end of the out-breath, with the feeling of welcoming. How would that feel? And that's, it. that's another way of looking at the training of the heart, is that, you know, I was using the bicycle analogy earlier, the tuning analogy is really nice too. You know, you tune into something. You tune, like you tune into a radio station. Does anyone listen to radio anymore? Anyway, you tune in into something. You, you, if you're in a choir, uh, you tune into the voices in the temple, uh, like as monks, we chant together, we tune into each other's voices. Sometimes the tuning's not great, but you give it a go. Um, so, you know, there are states of mind, if we tune into them and, and we sustain them, then that will serve uh, other parts of our life because I have this kind of attunement. And so that's, again, not, a, not so much an achievement, but it's intuitive, and it's actually not very esoteric. So if I, if I say to myself in, in, in meditation, if I say to myself, uh, what would welcoming feel like? Yeah? What would, what would the, what, 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 like if I welcome the in-breath, what, 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 what would the tone of mind be there? And if I tuned into that, and then I, and, and then I used the end of the out-breath, or the breath itself, I'll, 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 I'll practice awareness with breathing with this quality of mind called welcoming. And I do that on the in and out breath. Then my, 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 my experience of life has a certain tone to it. And then that tone will help me as I resist things. When I try to repress things or get rid of things. That tone will really help because it's created contrast. And that kind of samadhi or that kind of meditation is not like absorbing into anything. It, it, it's, about, it's about ordinary life and it's tremendously helpful. And, and it seems to me meditation must serve us all the time. It can't be just a, a separate activity, you know, kind of divorced from, from the reality of our, our, our experience. So the way I was talking about like using, uh, using the out-breath when I was talking about the, the, the use of the breath and, and how, how you, 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 can, you can cultivate wholesome states of mind with an out-breath, can't you? If you tune into that wholesome state of mind. So one of the wholesome states of mind I'm recommending is stillness. Just that, just like, listen and know, just know, and then you then it's not so much about the sound, the sound brings you to the stillness. Because that's what we're really, I think, we're really concerned about is not the objects of our experience, but that which underlies our experience, the kind of peace of consciousness which we miss 
when we're always distracted by resistance and infatuation and all the rest of it. And, and then doing exercises that are about the quality of attention rather than the quality of our uh, objective experience. This is a change, isn't it? Desire is about the quality of your objective experience. So you like salt on your scrambled eggs, you put salt on your scrambled eggs, you like, uh, you know, you like your garden to be nice and neat, so you make a neat garden. Uh, you like your apartment to be decorated in a way which is pleasing. So those are all the, the ways we use uh, beauty and, and whatever we like on the external world. And, and that can be helpful as environments, but that in itself will not liberate you, as we all know. So then the way of, the way of like contemplative meditation is now it's not so much about whether my mind is experiencing beauty or ugliness, it's the underlying knowing from silence that that's okay, that it's okay to feel greed, hatred, and delusion as long as I don't believe in them. And that's what's really liberating. So that does two things. It, it gives you the right reference, but then these, the operations and, and the uh, manifestations of greed, hatred, and delusion in these various ways, they, they are, this is the idea of purification. They go through consciousness, but because they're not identified anymore as me, essentially me, their power, they get disempowered basically. So what, what empowers, say, what empowers uh, worry? It's thought, isn't it? Uh, that's what empowers worry. You think worrying thoughts. What empowers uh, rage against someone? You think rageful thoughts. What empowers self-disparagement? You think self-disparaging thoughts. Right? What empowers etc. etc. So that empowerment, how do we disempower these energies? Well, it's not by getting rid of them, but it's by knowing them as phenomena in nature that arise and cease. And hence the Buddha's emphasis on anicca sanya or the perception of change. And, and we miss that when we're just addicted to the attachments of craving. So my suggestion then is one type of kind of addiction is the kind of idealized getting rid of. I shouldn't be this way. And the stance of awareness is it is this way. It's like this. It feels like this. And then if it's morally inappropriate to go in that direction, you don't go there. You don't you know, I don't harm people with speech. I don't care how angry I might be, I, or I, 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 I don't do corrupt things because it's just wrong. It's just wrong to do that. But it's not wrong to feel that. It's not wrong to, to kind of want to take a bit of money from the till. <laughs> just don't do it. <laughs> right? It's not wrong to want to um, yell at someone who you're frustrated with, but don't do it. And that's hard to do. Yeah? But you can see how if you don't do it, you still, you still have the burning. And then bearing with the burning is why we talk about patience and wisdom and, and, and all these different qualities. Huh? Ajahn Chah once said to someone in the monastery, he said, you know, when you've cried three times, you'll have some insight. <laughs> see, the idea of insight is that you, you just got to meditate, 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 and your head blows open, there it is. But he was suggesting that actually it's the struggle, the struggle which oftentimes brings the insight. Or he'd say to me, 
you know, yeah, wait for, wait for five years, you might have some insight. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, but what he was saying is you have to, you know, you know, because my mind wasn't changed, you have to just develop the kind of basics of uh, be patient and just know the way things are. And so hopefully the meditation serves that for us, and, and it certainly does for me. So what I, I, I really just try that, like in, in my own meditation, I, I put in the suggestions of affection a lot, or, or welcoming or kindness, and then try to flow the whole breath with those affections, or with those attitudes, or with those types of mindsets. And, and if you, obviously if you do that, then that's what the mind becomes, to some extent. To some extent, but not always. The so you you one of the things what each of us kind of looks at in our own lives is where where what kind of mind states do we become preoccupied with? Right? Is it like uh, am I a, am I just sort of is it always into making lists or planning or fantasizing or resenting or you know what what's the basic tone of mind that constantly preoccupies my attention because as, my, as long as my attention is preoccupied with the objective world of emotions and, and experiences that preoccupation precludes my realization of the unconditioned right because I'm looking in the wrong place, I'm preoccupied. So the problem is this preoccupation all the time, isn't it? It's, it's not that we're bad, uh, we're very good people, I think, from, you know, very good people. That, that's, not, that's not a really, it's usually not a moral problem, it's just this preoccupation all the time. And much of the preoccupation is, is, is not really that emotional, it's just in the habits of thought. Wouldn't you say? Isn't that the kind of kind of generally where, where we're at. Because most of us at this age probably have, you know, worked through our, our basic neuroses <laughs> in some way. You know, we're kind of functioning, fairly healthy human beings getting on, you know how to get on the subway and how to buy timber at Home Depot and do those ordinary things. So usually it's, it's just this kind of endless preoccupation with thinking. And the thinking is always, always um, has a self-sense in it, doesn't it? me and what I'm going to do or what I should do and that. So how do you, what, what would be the ways of creating contrast to thought? Whatever the thought is, right? What would, what would be the ways of creating contrast to, to the thinking mind or to the self-thinking mind? Functional thinking is fine and necessary and it's good, but the kind of thinking we're, we're talking about is this sort of me and my thinking. What should I do? And why I shouldn't have done that? And the resentments and so on. And so that's the thinking that we're concerned. That's preoccupation. That's not functional. So what kind of meditation, obviously, would help in contrasting that? Well, obviously the body. You know, just being aware of your heart chakra, or being aware of your breathing at the hara, or being aware of the end of the out-breath, bypassing the whole... Um, self-thinking mind and just going to the body. You did that a lot, and that's the contrast to thought. Simple, isn't it? And, it, and, and that's the same idea. So, so with the breath meditation, you're, you're with the body for one out-breath. You're traveling you know, with the whole out-breath or the whole in-breath. 
And so then body awareness becomes very, very, very uh, constant. And so then thoughts come up, you've got some place to return to. So you can bypass all that papancha in the mind and say, yeah, yeah, I hear you, but what, what's, where's the body now? Where's the heart chakra now? And this needs to be, you know, you have to do this a lot because the, the, the preoccupation with self-thinking is so powerful, isn't it? It's not, it's not trivial, it's a really, really powerful, powerful force in our, in our makeup, in our karma. So then you make a, a, a kind of determination in your life um, to create a conscience. You say, okay, um, more and more I'll, I'll, I'll refer to the body. So my own practice is very much to put a lot of emphasis in the heart chakra. Simple enough, you know, there's no complexity there. It always seems to be there some way, either contracted or not, or open. Obviously it's more and more open. But then that becomes a go-to place, right? Just in, and that's not about uh, thought. I'm not thinking about it. No, no. What's it like here? What's it like here? What's it like here? What's it like here? Constantly, constantly, constantly. And then the, 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 the place where attention hab the place where attention habitually uh, <laughs> the place attention habitually inhabits, so we say, we say it that way, is, is no longer thought, but it's the body. Because that's what it's been doing. That's its momentum. That's its uh, its nature. Uh, and, and so, just by doing that, doing that, and being aware of the heart chakra, then as the mind produces self-thinking through worry or annoyance or resentment or whatever it is, um, you you're, you're not just addicted to that. You know, you've got the body telling you, "Oh, there's a lot of thinking going on now. There's a lot of papancha going on now. What's what's that about?" Right? And, you go, and, and, and rather than try to resolve it through thought, which is endless, and analyze and figure out, you don't try to figure it out. You say, oh, thought is this way, and the body is this way. So you begin to abandon the strategies of self-thinking, letting go of that. So, in, in, in terms of contrasts, the things that I find very helpful are, are all those things of the Brahma-viharas, of the open heart. Any, anything that is like gratitude, um, devotion, compassion, uh, appreciation of beauty, peace, all those are contrasts to its, to its opposites. And then, the opposites for me tend to be um, the, the, you know, the negativities of worry, worry about the monastery, whatever. They're not so great now. They used to be very powerful based upon fear. So if, you, if, the, if the uprising of old Kama is very emotional, then you've got this brilliant way of processing it through the body. And if it's not terribly emotional, it's just habitual, then it's through thought. It's the same thing. It works in the same way. So is that kind of, those kinds of ideas, they're not very complicated, but maybe um, they're worthwhile considering. Huh? So uh, unless uh, there's any, are there any questions or should we sit a bit, Jim? What, what, what would you recommend? <clears throat> Type it into a chat, and uh, 
would be better. Type it into a chat and we'll send it to Ajahn. We have one here, yeah. We'll sit for the next uh, So there's a question here. Yeah. Does, does meditation help with morality or is morality there to help with meditation? I'm asking this question because there are meditation teachers who have deep insights on meditation but have abused their power as teachers. Does this mean that you can be a good meditator without being a good person? I doubt if the person who says they had deep insights and was immoral had any deep insights. Because if you have any deep insights, you could not hurt another person. So, charisma and power aren't necessarily insightful. They just fool people. So, first and foremost, if a person um, says, well, you know, I'm enlightened and hence I'm going to abuse you, run away. <laughs> or arrest them. <laughs> and, that, and that's just pure ignorance. Pure, pure, pure ignorance. You, can, you, you know, any, any of us have been meditating. You see a fly, you don't want to kill it or abuse it or hurt it, right? You, you couldn't, you couldn't do that. So there is, there is this thing called Sanyavipalasa in Pali, which is, uh, uh, it's kind of like deluded perception, where someone has some experience or whatever, and they think they're the Buddha or God incarnate, whatever you want, and, and then from that delusion uh, and, and uh, from the communities being fooled by the charisma and all the hype around that, uh, uh, the whole thing gets out of bounds because everyone starts to praise this being and, and everyone is sort of intimidated. Well, how can I criticize this being? Everyone says this being is enlightened. Whereas in, in Theravada, if anyone is not keeping the five precepts, you, you basically call them on it. And, and like, especially like in terms of teachers having power, uh, sexual impropriety and monetary impropriety have been the two big things, I suppose. Um, but in, in Theravada Buddhism, say, the, like the third precept in the five precepts is that uh, sexuality is about fidelity and caring and love. And, and in the monastic setting, it's about celibacy, having no, no sexual relationships or expressing sexual energy. And, and anyone to say that, well, I'm enlightened, so hence, whatever you want to say, is, is just pure delusion. And then monetarily, too, I mean, why do you want money? <laughs> right? Seems like such a hassle. <laughs> um, so, so, but, but you know, communities become very. Um, uh, there was a brilliant book called "Shoes at the Door." Shoes at the Door by about I think Zen Center in California and Baker Roshi and that. It was a brilliant. It was done by a, I thought a very uh, sympathetic journalist. He wasn't just trying to rip it down. But it gave a lot of insight into the psychology of, of group hype and, 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 and group praise of someone who you know, didn't have that much wisdom, really. Whereas in Theravada Buddhism, because we, we, we stress a morality-based spirituality that everyone has access to, so, 
So for the monks, we have a vinaya which is very strict on, 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 on like sexual behavior or even language, which is like, if a monk has language of sexual innuendo to a woman and he does it deliberately, then he has to do a kind of practice on his own for quite a long time. There's really, really strong restraint around that. And in Theravada Buddhism, these rules are public. So you can't, you can't have uh, a senior monk saying, well, I'm beyond these rules. This just doesn't compute. It's wrong. Ajahn Chah said, what do you think I keep the rules? You, know, you, think, you think I'm going to lose the plot if I don't? No, I, 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 I uphold the tradition because that helps everyone else uphold the tradition. In the, in, the, um, yeah, in the text, you have Anuruddha, who's enlightened, and he is uh, he's invited by a courtesan because she loves Dhamma, and he spends the night in her home. Nothing happens. He's, he's beyond that, uh, and he's enlightened, but the Buddha still criticizes him. He said, that was wrong because society will look on that as wrong. Society will perceive that as wrong, and you have, you have a... You have responsibility to the perceptions of society too. That's interesting. He's even an enlightened person said, "No, no, no. There are social conventions which you have to also observe." So, yeah, like it's very clear from the get-go that the Buddha just did not allow any kind of immoral behavior with his disciples. It was just not on. But uh, I think. I mean, it happens, doesn't it? And, and charisma, charisma is very powerful, um, and 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 people's, you know, wanting of that or whatever. So with with us, with our community, with the forest monks that I'm involved with, you know, we're we're very in touch with whatever's going on. And if we feel, usually, it's like some monk who's just kind of starting to teach and he's getting a bit lost in, in the praise of lay people, and we just pull him back. We say, what are you doing? And, and so for us, what's very important is what we call samana sanya, where we're always kind of relating to each other. We're samanas. We're celibate, you know. We're, we're not into power, into money, into fame. That's not our brief. And, and because we are, you know, we're functioning as a sangha in that way, uh, if, if a monk who's kind of becoming a teacher starts to lose the plot, then he comes back in the sangha and oh, wait, 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 I'm a monk first. Because with, with teaching, quite often lay people can be very uh, praising of a, of a teacher, right? It can be very, very um, uh, intoxicating or, or, or uh, you know, the ego can get inflated and so on. But... When you come back into the monastery, you're just another monk, <laughs> which is very healthy. I remember the first retreat I did, I was so afraid, so afraid, so afraid. Oh, I was just so afraid. I survived it, right? And some people said it was okay. And then I felt, well, I felt, yeah, I'm all right. And then I came back, and, I, and, and the monks just looked at me like I was another monk, because so that's what I was. And I felt very deflated. And I realized, oh, that's good for me, because that feeling of inflation was not a good thing. It was the growth of a, you know, a ego. And then, then just being in the sangha of, of celibates and people who are not into that, it didn't have to say anything, really. It was just I could see for myself, oh, yeah, yeah, you're kind of losing the plot here. Be careful. And that's called samana sanya. Samana is, is a renunciate, and sanya is the perception of what our renunciate 
um, is. So where I think the problems have arisen in at least North America, India too, uh, in different cultures around, like gurus, is when there is no sangha. And, and sangha I mean by uh, peers who are keeping the same discipline, uh, peers of, of, of same value. So for us that's happened when monks have become too famous and, and drifted away from their brothers and become too, um, uh, too famous and all, all of that brought and, and then they've made mistakes from that. The ones that have, have positions of great um, status but then come back into the Sangha, it's always a kind of lovely normalizing, normalizing function. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a sad one, isn't it? When that happens, a very sad one. Um, and let's see if we got another question here. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, four. Uh, I think four questions are done. So. Okay. Jimby, Jimby, Jimby. Which one? What is it? That one? Yeah. What is the difference between patience, endurance, and equanimity? Well, again, it's, it's, I'm not a kind of parser of language. I don't, uh, like I can see like there's patient endurance and there's impatient endurance, <laughs> right? <laughs> you, can, you can see how I'm doing this and there's patient endurance and then equanimity you could see would be conjoined with that. Um, but if you, if you had a situation that was very stressful and you were becoming really impatient and you thought you had to be equanimous, then you could maybe feel like you're doing it wrong. But then you said, no, 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 I have to, I have to work with this impatience to take my mind towards equanimity. So you could see uh, patient endurance would be a way of, of, of aspiring to equanimity even though the equanimity might not be so strong. So equanimity, as it's described in, in the realization of teachers, can be very, very, very deep and profound in ways which are hard even to imagine. Um, and there's, and so, but the, but the pathway for that, especially like Ajahn Chah, law, that, that's, we got a lot of that teaching, just uh, Oton, they would say, endure. Uh, Oton was a, was a law, that was the, that was the, Thai or the Northeast, Northeast Thai language they would use and then, you know we'd go to Ajahn Chah and say wow this is hard my mind is just a mess and I'm not getting anywhere and, and Lompa Chah said Oton if you want to meditate meditate if you don't want to meditate meditate and 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 that's all you you know in in the early years that's all you had to go on because you didn't know you never meditated you know you didn't know where this was going so that the the assurance of a teacher uh, that you really trusted and you know this this man, not, he knows, he's got the goods, and he's living the life, and so, okay, I'll trust you. And so patient endurance quite often is also an issue of trust, that this will change, you know, putting that kind of language, this will change, even though it seems unendurable. And, and, and that comes up when you have like deep grief, or, 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 or deep despair around some sickness, um, patient endurance. And then the word itself is not a command. The word is a reflection. That's all, very important for me is that it's a mirror. You know, like when you when you you want to you want to put on some nice clothing because you're going to the restaurant sometime next year, 
you, uh, you know, you dress up, make yourself look uh, presentable. You look at a mirror and then you see, oh yeah, the, the shirt's not right or the blouse isn't right or whatever. The same with the teaching. That's what the teaching is doing. It's like when you put in the language, patient endurance, it's not like you, you must be patient. That's not patient endurance. That's, that's a tyranny, isn't it? Whereas just the language, just be patient. This will change. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember. Yeah. Just be patient. This will change. So it's a, it's a, it's a use of language which is training and coaching and encouraging towards the correct attitude in this situation. And then the more you do that, then the more the the, the less the the um, the mind reacts in an impatient way because you've now put alternatives in there, and then you begin to taste equanimity, what that's about. But, but equanimity would also mean that you accept the fact that you're not equanimous. <laughs> it's got to start from acceptance, doesn't it? It's the only place it can start. If it starts from equanimity means I won't have the state of mind, then it's not, it's not going to be in the path. So it's this kind of realization, it's like this, and then the gentle language and encouraging language, oton, be patient, this will change. Um, and certainly when I was, those early years of monasticism, uh, the only thing I had to go on was just Ajahn Chah's word, because certainly what was going on in my busy and confused mind was not equanimous at all. <laughs> it was chaotic and, and difficult. So what happens then is something's got to carry you. Something's got to carry you through the chaos sometimes. And that, of course, is like your, your moral precepts, your friendships, and your work, uh, uh, and your society, you know, who you are as a human being carries you. Now, I guess with this COVID thing, a lot, you know, who you are is no longer there for some people or whatever, but you can see your social definition is something that can carry you, right? So for me, my definition of a monk and what I do and my responsibilities and, and going to meetings and working defines me. That's what I do. Now my inner world, it might be, you know, it was sometimes very chaotic and, and, and confused, but that's okay. You want to meditate? Meditate. If you don't want to meditate, meditate. So the, the lifestyle carries me. It carries me through chaos and confusion and peace or whatever. If you don't have a good lifestyle and, and you're just on your own, then it's difficult. You don't have kalyanamitta, you don't have good preset boundaries, uh, you don't have work. These, 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 are, these are difficult things. Um, so that's why right, right life, lifestyles are very important, right living is very important in, in that way. So you have a vehicle to practice in. And that's always been the traditional way of, of religious endeavor is that we are, uh, the idea of vocation, so family is vocation, profession is vocation, monasticism is vocation. So you are in your vocation vehicle as it were. Right? You being father or mom or secretary or whatever you want, monk, is, is a kind of a construct, conventional construct within which you watch uh, confusion or whatever and try to develop as a human being. So these, you know, meditation without that, of course, is, is not a full life. It, it doesn't make sense. It's always in, in the context of all that. So my own difficulties as a young monk were in the context that there was structure, there was morality, there were elder monks who, who, who who just, I just look at them, I get inspired. Uh, there was a society which encouraged me through all my chaotic difficulties, right? So I had a, a really, really good structure. I was lucky that way. 
but just to do it on my, I was trying to sort of do it on my own. I was in, I was in Elmora, a hill town for about a year in India in 1971 too. I uh, kind of trying to do it on my own, but I just had no structure and no way to do it and, and just my own um, befuddled mind <laughs> trying to struggle with that. So then I needed structure. Uh, so how can your structure serve that? Your family structure, your service to your kids or your service to your education system, all of those are like part of the vehicle. Very important, very important. What do we got? <clears throat> How does one differentiate between functional thoughts and the ongoing stream of thought? It all seems functional. Oh. Well, I, I would say for me, the, the, uh, the troublesome part is the, the, the storylines of self. You know, so if I'm, if I'm worried about the the future, and I just cut, and I'm just, my thought pattern is just driven by worry, not by, by, by a good analysis, and I just keep bringing up, then I, see, then I see that these thought patterns are not functional, they are habitual, driven by some uh, underlying aspect of mind which is not skillful. So like I might feel, if I feel resentment to someone, say, that they shouldn't be this way, you know, it might be true, and maybe I have to do something about it, but that mind, which is driven by, oh, you know, they shouldn't be this way, and I shouldn't be this way, that whole uh, attachment to a way of thinking, which is actually not really productive or functional. It's not like, okay, I've got a problem. This is a situation at work. This is problematic. How might I deal with it? That team seems to me, you know, necessary. But the other is, oh, that person is such a creep, you know. How do I get rid of them? And I, I really don't like them. Oh, but I should like them. All of that kind of thing, to me, is the, the, the very unskillful. And what we try to do that is, you know, the, you know, the, the common thing in, in Buddhist practice is labeling. You just label the underlying tone, the mood. It's very helpful. You just fantasy or, or, or worry, and you know, worry this way. And then you see that's driving the thoughts. So let's say if we... Yeah, like, like we're trying to set up a, a, we're trying to build a meditation hall. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden this COVID thing comes up, right? And now the price of lumber is like gone through the ceiling. And they're like, oh, no, not now. Uh, and so there's kind of concern that way. But functionally we think, okay, what, what can we do? Okay, we have to delay it. We'll delay it. We'll see next spring. Da, 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 da. And that's functional thought. But then worrying, oh, this will never happen. And, that's an easy one because it's not very emotional. What would be more emotional would be maybe, uh, yeah, if, if there was some real conflict in the monastery, we don't have conflict right now, but if there's some real conflict between the monks, you know, kind of that kind of stuff, and and then you know, I as the abbot would think, oh gosh, what am I going to do when these guys are you know, not getting along? And that would not be functional. It would be just coming from my own anxieties. And then I'd have to recognize that, oh, anxiety feels this way. And then functionally, it's okay, we're going to sit down and talk. We've got to do that. Hmm? So it seems to me, sometimes the boundaries aren't clear, but, but the one, the unskillful thought, is always, always has a strong sense of I in it, self, me, me and mine. So responsibility has a sense of me and mine in it, but it's not egotistical. It's more responsible. So in that case, like I'm responsible, I'm a senior monk, 
and there are these, these difficulties between, again, we're not having any problems, but that I have been in monasteries where there are problems. <laughs> and uh, this needs to be addressed. That's my responsible functional thinking. The other anxiety, oh, what are we going to do? And the monasteries are going to fall apart. And, uh, that's fear. And then the thoughts are driven by fear, creating a sense of self, right? So that's the way I differentiate. In closing my heart off to an important person in my life who has hurt me very deeply, I find I have lost the beautiful feeling of an expansive heart, the loving kindness, the compassion, the equanimity. I find myself turning away from friends for minor transgressions. My beloved daughter has shut me out, made me an object. I'm lost for a way out. Uh, please help. Yeah, that's painful. That's very, very painful, isn't it? Um, can you put that up again for me? Uh, okay, so this is the this is this is of course what happens when we are you know when we're deeply hurt by something and we close off. We don't realize that in the future we'll be closed off to many things by closing oneself off, then the habit of closing off, okay, yeah, then the habit of closing off becomes ingrained in the mind, and that's tragic. Um, and that's why, mm, like, for example, now, there's a lot of debate about politics in, in, in the country south of Canada, you might have heard, um, and, and there's a lot of uh, ill feeling, a lot of ill feeling right now, about the politics in the country south of us, which is, you probably know, U.S. of A. Um, and, and it's very easy now for people to hate that part of the, of the culture which they think is wrong, that politician or that viewpoint, right or left. And, and it's all, you know, one, one could, could justify all of that. But in terms of stream of consciousness, if I invest in any, I mean, hatred's a really, really heavy thing. It's different than anger. Anger is a flare-up that has its social consequences, but hatred is, is pretty serious, right? So if then hatred is justified, and then one picks up all the themes of hatred to justify that, that's very troubling, very, very troubling. Even though one might, the world might agree with you, or half the world, or three quarters of the world, still then the, the, the momentum of the heart is now somehow imbued with hatred. And it will manifest with other people, unfortunately. It won't just end there, because it's been given life. Hatred's been given reality in life. So next time it comes up, it might not be someone in that political realm. It might be someone who's doing something else. But because the habit of the mind now is somewhat attuned to hatred, it then will project onto that situation. And then if, there, if one isn't careful, then of course that becomes um, sad to say the least. <laughs> sad to say the least, yeah. So when, 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 we're, you know, when we're deeply hurt, then the temptation of course is to, to be revengeful or to close the heart because it's so painful. And then when we've done that, we get the consequences. So for this person, okay, this is the consequence now. This has happened. This is like it is. 
and how do you how do you